And uh, it is my pleasure to uh, introduce our guest speaker today. Uh, we already you know, met him and he's been with us since the beginning of the year. Uh, Brother Voltaire uh, Karkel, uh, like many of us, is a transplanted Texan. So he's uh, from Bay Area and he is an alum of John Stockton, alma mater, Cal Poly, one of the best engineering schools in the country not just in California, That's, you know, hard to get in. Anyway, and he's a father of three daughters and uh, you will hear rest of his story. But I'm so glad that God brought us, uh, you know, uh, uh, Han and uh, Voltaire, all this, you know. Hey, I, I am most grateful, but we should be all grateful. And so uh, Brother Voltaire uh, will share God's words, so you take from here. All right, thank you, Pastor Paul. Let me share my screen here. Okay, can you all see that? Wonderful. All right, so good morning. It's good to worship with you all today. For today's message, I'd like to talk about family, uh, particularly the topic of generations. And we'll take a look at the journey of the Israelite families in Joshua 3. Now, like uh, Pastor Paul mentioned, a lot of us who come from immigrant families actually know that there are a lot of interesting dynamics when it comes to relating to one another within our immediate family and to others outside of our immediate family, especially when you're talking about first-generation parents and second-generation kids. Now, for most immigrants, we consider the first generation those who are born outside the U.S. and have made this country our new home. The second generation are those who are born in the US with immigrant parents. But there's a term that I learned over 20 years ago and that term is Gen 1.5. A Gen 1.5 is one who is technically a first gen, uh, born outside the US, but they're brought here at an early enough age where their formative years growing up are spent here. So it's usually those who immigrate here before they become adults. Now, Gen 1.5s exhibit strong characteristics of a second gen, but really with deeply rooted values of a first gen. And I was reminded of this because my younger brother, Ray, turned 50 last year. But he was born in San Francisco, so he's a second gen Filipino-American, technically. Whereas I was born in the Philippines, but grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I'm, I'm a Gen 1.5, and our parents are first gen Filipino-Americans. I also have a sister who's five years younger than me and born in San Francisco as well. So she's a second gen. Well, suffice to say, our family had a lot of interesting dynamics. And more than 50 years later, we still have a lot of interesting dynamics. One of the things I learned and um, experienced growing up as a Gen 1.5 in the Bay Area and now living in Texas uh, is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. And never changes. And it was something that I picked up in James 1. Uh, and we'll get to see how that attribute actually shows up in Joshua 3 this morning. So growing up in a Christian home, I knew intellectually that God is sovereign and that he is in control over all things. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. He's all-powerful. But I also learned that he wants me to experience him in ways that go beyond what my parents have ever taught. So I've always been intrigued with generations and how families interact cross-generationally. So much so that I became a student of culture and not just my culture as a Filipino American, but the cultures of 
my friends whose parents and grandparents came from so many different parts of the world. And it intrigued me because I realized that a lot of us 1.5 and second gen kids experienced very similar dynamics growing up. But it wasn't until I got to university that I really embraced together my heritage as a Filipino and my nationality as an American. I saw the richness of not only what God had given me as a Filipino American or even an Asian American, but also what he revealed to me through my friends from other cultures and through my parents who did not grow up in the US. So this brings us to Joshua, whom I consider to be a Gen 1.5. At the time of the Israelites crossing the Jordan River, he was only one of two adults who survived the wanderings of the desert. So he was kind of like a bridge between the previous generation that escaped Egypt and this next generation who was to continue with their parents' legacy. If you've ever had to navigate between cultures as a kid, you can probably relate to Joshua. Oftentimes these kids are called TCKs, third culture kids. And the challenge for Joshua's family though, is that he grew up with the realization that his parents would not get to see firsthand God's people entering into the land that was promised to them. So he actually ended up in his formative years raised in a different culture than what his parents brought him out of. And not only that, but he was to bring God's people into a whole new place that no one was familiar with. So as we get ready to dive into Joshua 3, it's important for us to know that um, as basically um, at, at this point in, in the Bible, uh, we've seen two major periods of beginnings and wanderings uh, where there are important people and events to remember. In beginnings, we've got creation, the fall, the flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and in wanderings, we've got Moses, the Passover, the law, the tabernacle, offerings and feasts, counting and spying, wandering and dying, and then the second law. But one of these days, I'd love to be able to take you all on an afternoon walk through the Bible, because what I've just shown you is actually a tool that's helped me over the years. And it's something that I've, I've done with a ministry called Walk Through the Bible. And it actually helps me because uh, now, in order for you to truly appreciate the passage, like what, we'll get, what we're going to cover in Joshua today, it would actually be helpful for you to know how these things got to the point where they are now at the banks of the Jordan River. So what happens in the book of Joshua? He basically conquered the land. So the key word for the book of Joshua is conquers. Now, General Joshua leads the nation of Israel in the conquest of the land of Canaan. This is pretty much a tale of war and peace. In the first 12 chapters, the people of Israel conquered the land of Canaan. Through three military campaigns involving more than 30 enemy armies, they learn a valuable lesson under Joshua's capable leadership. Victory comes through faith in God and obedience to his word rather than by military might or numerical superiority. And in the final 12 chapters of the book, peace reigns as the people of God divide up their new homeland and, and settle there. So we know this about God's people. 
They experienced victory and peace, but they did not know this as they were approaching their obstacle of the Jordan River. So maybe you can relate in that you may have goals in life, but end up encountering seemingly impossible obstacles that you have to cross. You want to make sure that your goals line up with the word of God. You can do this by continually studying and meditating on God's word to see if your attitudes and actions line up with what God wants for you and your life. This is why the parents of this generation of Israelites had to wander for 40 years. Their attitudes and their actions did not line up with God's commands. And so so now Joshua is the one who is left to lead this next generation of Israelites. And we're talking about Two million Israelites who are coming through. So as we read through Joshua 3 today, I'd like for you to listen and pay attention to three attributes of God that will show up. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. So please join me in following along silently as we read through Joshua 3 this morning. Corinne? Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officer went to the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from you Drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jergashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is besides Zarethan. And those flowing down from this, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all people 
And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord God, that as we have seen in Joshua's life, in the life of your people, you are truly sovereign. Thank you that as we have gathered this morning to worship, to worship you and learn more from you, we are given this opportunity to have your word speak truth into our lives. May you touch our hearts in ways that our minds would continue to be renewed and that our lives would be transformed by you, O Lord. The one who grants us victory through faith in you and obedience to your word, rather than by any human might or superiority that we try to establish. Lord, help us to show how your omniscience, your omnipresence, and your omnipotence guides us through any obstacle that we may encounter as we journey toward your divine goals in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing we all need to realize is that the Israelites crossed the Jordan when the river was at its widest, deepest, and swiftest in late April or around early May. Now, picture this. As the snow on Mount Hermon melts and rainy season ends, the Jordan rises to a depth of about 10 to 12 feet and floods to a width of 300 to 360 feet at this point in the river's flow today. Normally, it's only about 150 to 180 feet wide here. However, in Joshua's day, the river was full up to its banks, as the Hebrew text suggests. The people considered crossing the river at this time of the year by swimming a heroic feat in ancient times. This was back in their day, the American Ninja Warrior. This is probably how the spies crossed in chapter two. If you were to see the Jordan River today, it's actually just a trickle compared to what it was during Joshua's time. If you've ever been whitewater rafting or even seen pictures or videos, there are usually six classes of difficulty with six being the most extreme where only single kayak experts are able to navigate. The most that outfitter raft trips like you see here could do is a class five. So what you're seeing though in this picture is more like a class three with waves up to our our. our four feet and narrow passages that send the boat shimmying and, and water gushing over its sides. It's plenty of excitement. Now, according to a 2010 report about the Jordan River, it contains only 3% of the water that it did 100 years ago. The river discharged 1.3 billion cubic meters of water in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The report contrasts this with the current discharge of the river, which is just 20 to 30 million cubic meters. So overflowing all its banks is not a phrase that is typically used when describing the Jordan River today. Now imagine God's people and watching a class five craziness of water gushing by you, knowing that God has promised the land on the other side. Not only that, but imagine being Joshua and having to get two million people across the Jordan in order to get to Jericho. Have you ever watched crossing guards at schools, uh, particularly elementary schools, get a huge cluster of these, these crazy children across the street? Now, imagine trying to bring the entire population of Austin, Texas, across the whitewater rapids of the Jordan River. That was Joshua's first mission upon assuming command. So here's what I want you to understand, because 
as you read through the text, you uh, and you basically saw that the Israelites were were navigating their way to Jericho, and the river actually was was walled up at a city called Adam, which was almost twenty five miles away from the Dead Sea. Now, to put this into perspective for us, think about where the Dallas Zoo is located, and how far north IKEA in Frisco is from there. That is the miracle that the Israelites witnessed on that day. A whitewater river suddenly walled up and completely dry from the Dallas Zoo all the way up to Ikea and Frisco. It would take an average of nine hours to walk that far. Can you picture it? So as we dive deeper into this passage, I want us to keep in mind three important things. God is all-knowing. He guides his people through unfamiliar territory. Um, if you're taking notes, hopefully you were able to get a uh, uh, the, the, the link that I put in the chat. So it's the very first thing there, and uh, it'll, it'll help you out here. Number two, God is all-present. He leads his people through uncertain times. And number three, God is all-powerful. He carries his people through unmanageable circumstances. Now, have you ever made a decision where you were uncertain of what the final outcome would be? When I moved to Texas in 1997, I had no idea what was in store for me. I felt like I was headed to uncertain Texas, which, by the way, is only 181 miles east of here. Yes, there's really a place. But after much prayer and consultation, I left San Francisco Bay Area and landed in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. The hard part wasn't the actual move because my company paid for everything to make it easier for me. My, my Jordan River at that time was leaving the comforts of family, friends, and familiarity and having to get reacclimated to a place full of different people, different customs, and different landscape. Whereas I was very much an outdoors guy in California, I soon discovered that I had allergies where I had none before. And on top of that, my first summer here was one where we had 100 plus degrees of weather for 100 plus days. Like what in the world was going on? Well, in verse six, we see that God is omniscient. He is all knowing. So here's something I'd like for you to think about. If we truly believe that God is all knowing, what are some things that make us forget that he knows everything all the time? What are the distractions that are out there that make us forget that our God is all-knowing? When we don't know what lies ahead, we must have faith that God already knows for us. Verses 3 to 4 says, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. From this point forward, God continued to lead his people by means of an ark. Whereas in the wilderness, the cloudy pillar of the ark was focused on the Israelites' attention. Now the ark itself became the primary object of their attention. The writer mentioned the ark 17 times in chapters 3 and 4. 
It was the visible symbol that God himself was leading his people into the land against their enemies. The people were to keep their distance from the ark, however, about 2,000 cubits, more than half a mile. Now, the ark was carried in front of the people, not so much to show the road as to make a road. By dividing the waters of the Jordan and the people were to keep at a distance from it that they might not lose sight of the ark, but keep their eyes fixed upon it. Now, remember, you've got two million people, the entire city of Austin trying to follow this. So here they are being led by the same ark that their parents had followed, now getting ready to enter Canaan by a way they had never gone before. A miraculous way. The people's consecration in verse 5 consisted of their turning their hearts to God and getting their attitudes and actions right with him. Back in Exodus 34, God had previously promised to do wonders, awesome miracles upon their entering the land. Undoubtedly, the people had been looking forward to seeing these miracles in view of what their parents had told them and what some of them remembered as children about the plagues in Egypt. Did you know that Mark Zuckerberg has more than 160 million followers? I can't even imagine having that many people watching everything I do. I wonder, though, who his closest friends are. I wonder who are the people that he can depend on and what they're even like. Now, think about the people that you depend on and what they're like. When I first moved to Dallas, I had no idea whom I could truly depend on. Even the huge telecom companies that I depended on to get me here and paid me a great deal to get me here, I realized were not reliable. Thankfully, God gave me a few friends throughout the years whom I could depend on. But even friends came and went. The only one who was consistent was God. In verses 7 to 13, we see that God is omnipotent. He is all present. He's everywhere. So here's what I would like for you to think about in this part. If we truly believe that God is all present, what are some things that make us forget that he is everywhere all the time? That he's always with us. When? When we're not sure of whom we can depend on. We must have faith that God will be there. Verse 10 says this. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. The miraculous parting of the Jordan was only the beginning of a series of miracles that demonstrated to the Israelites that their God was indeed among them. He was still acting on their behalf, but now he began working through Joshua to give them many miraculous victories. This event bore many similarities to the crossing of the Red Sea. But in contrast, Moses had divided the waters of the Red Sea with his rod. Joshua, divided the waters of the Jordan with the ark, which had become the divinely appointed symbol of God's presence ever since he gave the Mosaic covenant. Evidently, the pushing back of the waters of the Jordan was to be a sign to the Israelites that God would push 
back the Canaanites. The title, the Lord of all the earth here, for the first time in scripture, indicating Yahweh's absolute sovereignty over this planet was what they saw. Because he was the Lord of all the earth, which also meant its owner. He could give Canaan to the Israelites. Now, have you ever come across a seemingly impossible task and knew for a fact that there was no way you could possibly get it done? That's this picture of a snail crossing a busy road. If you can imagine some snail trying to cross 75 or 635 during rush hour traffic, this is what it is. There's no way that this slow little creature could possibly survive getting across a, such a massive and fast-moving danger zone. In verses 14 to 17, we see that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. So here's your third thought. If we truly believe that God is all-powerful, what are some things that make us forget that he can do anything all the time? When we come across an impossible task, we must have faith that God will get us through it. Verses 15 to 16 says, As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters come down from, from above, coming down from above, stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Here it says the Jordan was at flood stage, as it remains so throughout the time of harvest. This meant that the waters were very high, nearly overflowing the banks and moving rapidly. The Jordan River in this condition was deep, and the water fast. Crossing on foot was nearly impossible and very dangerous. It would have been unthinkable for the young and the elderly. Imagine trying to bring your children and their grandparents across together. As the Ark of the Covenant and the priests carrying it touched the fast-moving and uh, flood-high waters of the Jordan, God provided a miracle which would have been visible to everybody in the region. Two million Israelites could have crossed the river in half a day if their crossing procession was a mile or more wide. Since the Jordan dried up from Adam, 18 miles upstream from where the priests crossed, there could have been plenty of dry riverbed for two million Israelites to cross. The dry ground was a miracle too. In 1852, a theologian named George Bush, obviously not any of our presidents, said this. Duty often calls us to take one step without knowing how we shall take the next. But if brought thus far by the leadings of providence and while engaged in his service, we may safely leave the event to him. The major emphasis here in chapter 3 is on the great miracle that God performed to lead the Israelites into the land of promise. 
The conquest of the land would continue to be accompanied by God's miraculous works for his people, all of which they were to remember and appreciate. Israel needed to realize that God would not help them automatically. God would help them when they obeyed his commands. In the same way, we as God's people need to realize that God does not help us automatically. God helps us when we obey his commands, as he leads us in our active engagement with him as true disciples of Christ. With regards to crossing your personal Jordan, I leave you with three important reminders. In unfamiliar territory, God guides you as you follow him. Have you found yourself somewhere in uncertain Texas? God is your guide. He knows what's up ahead. Let him lead. Just follow. In uncertain times, God leads you as you seek him. Do you feel like you're alone sometimes? You're not. Even when you feel like God is nowhere to be seen, he promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And if you see someone who looks like they're alone, remind them that they're not. And in unmanageable circumstances, God carries you as you trust him. Are there ever instances where you come across an impossible task? Well, with God, nothing is impossible. Crossing the Jordan River into the land of Canaan was a major turning point as far as the faith of the Israelites were concerned. For their parents, the previous generation, to slip away into the wilderness of Sinai by crossing the Red Sea required some faith. But to invade the land of Canaan by crossing the Jordan River took a great deal more faith. Not because of the crossing itself, but because once they've crossed the river, there would be no possibility of escape, no turning back. Once in the land, they would have to face the enemy with their armies, chariots, and walled cities. The entire nation of two million took this step together in complete commitment to God. Let's pray.